Well, hey, it is good to gather with you this morning. Uh, just on this Memorial Day weekend, we're grateful that God's brought you to be here today. Obviously, a lot of our regular folks are out of town traveling this weekend, but in God's providence, you're here, and we're grateful for that, and that God's brought you to be here this morning and to hear his word preached, to sing songs of praise together, uh, and to be able just to be with one another. So let's pray before we open up God's word this morning. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your kindness to us that we get to be together this morning. Lord, it's a privilege that we have, uh, the freedom we have to do this, to gather here in a public place to open up your word. Lord, we thank you for those that have served and fought for the freedom we have to do that. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that. And we know, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things. And so we praise you for that this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we open up your word today, that we would just be impacted by it, that your Holy Spirit would work in and through the preaching of your word to bring new life, to encourage us in our relationship with you, to draw us closer to you, that our whole life might be given to you in praise and in worship. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that work today. Encourage us through your word this morning, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We've got a few folks that would love to give you a Bible so that you can read along with us this morning. Uh, so just keep your hand up until they find you. And if you don't actually have a Bible or own one, we'd love to give that to you just as a gift uh, so that you can uh, read along God's, in God's Word throughout the week. I, one of the things I love to do is I love to watch movies. I love all kinds of movies, whether it's a, a classic movie or a new movie, uh, drama, comedy, action, whatever it happens to be. I, just, I love just sitting down and watching movies. And I think it's just because of the story that can be uh, drawn out and portrayed in two hours or so of time. I mean, TV shows drag on and on and on, but movies are succinct stories. You've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And one of the best things in some movies is that some movies like to put in kind of a dramatic twist in the movie. And that always hooks you, right? I mean, you see this twist come and you're like, man, I didn't see that coming. And it just makes the movie all the better. I mean, classic movies have twists in them. One of my all-time favorite movies is a movie called Stalag 17. Most of you have probably never heard of it. You should go watch it. But it has a twist in it and it's great. The movie Psycho, The Empire Strikes Back, Citizen Kane, all those movies, they have twists in them that make you just drawn more into the story. But then newer movies have those as well. There's the classic The Sixth Sense, uh, A Beautiful Mind, The Prestige, and most recently, The Dark Knight Rises. All these movies, as they're unfolding, the story is unfolding, then something dramatic happens or is revealed that seems to kind of change everything that you thought was happening so far in the story. Well, that's kind of where we're at here in the book of Genesis as we've been walking through this over these last few weeks and few months as we've seen this story unfold mainly between Abraham and his relationship with God and all these promises that God has made to him. God has promised to Abraham that he will bless him, that he will make him a great nation and that through Abraham, through this great nation that he's forming, that he will bless all nations. And we've seen there's been many ups and downs throughout this journey, but God has continued to remain faithful. He says that Abraham will have a son with Sarah, his wife, and the name of this child will be Isaac. When we get to Genesis chapter 21, and we see that God is faithful to his word of promise to Abraham, and he gives him this son of promise. Genesis 21, verses 1 through 5 say, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, 
And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. God has done it. The promise is being fulfilled. The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham will be the father of a multitude. Through him, the nations will be blessed. But then we get to chapter 22. And a twist in the story comes. Something unexpected for the readers of this story and certainly unexpected for Abraham himself. And it's in this twist that you and I might be left scratching our head a little bit saying, wait a minute, what's going on? Why would God do what he does here in chapter 22? And it's the answer to that question that's the focus of our time today. What we learn from Genesis chapter 22, though, should be an encouragement to you and to me this morning. No matter what's going on in life, whether life is challenging for you right now, whether life is pretty good and or great for you right now, or it's just kind of plain for you, the truth of Genesis chapter 22 should encourage us this morning. And it's in this story that we see That Abraham's hope is challenged, where he places that is challenged, and where we place our hope is challenged. And all of this points to something greater, something better. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into the text. You can open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to read these first few verses here. We're going to go through the whole chapter, almost the whole chapter of 22, but I'm just going to for now just read verses 1 through 8. Chapter 22, verse 1 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men, young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, in the midst of the seeming craziness of this text, we can't skip over what verse 1 says. Because in verse 1, we see the beginnings of the unfolding of this story. This twist in plot, or what seems to be a twist in the story. Verse 1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. 
We have to understand Isaac has been born at this point. And, and if we remember that, uh, that Abraham, and along with his wife Sarah, at one point decided to try and take things into their own hands. And Abraham had a child with his wife's maidservant, his son Ishmael. But at this point in the story, Ishmael has been graciously sent away and God has preserved him. And so essentially Isaac is his only son now. And God has told Abraham that it's through Isaac that the promise will come. And the beginning of verse 1 says, Some time has passed after these things have happened. So Isaac is not a small child anymore. He's a young man, probably in his mid-teens. But verse 1 tells us God sought to test Abraham, not to tempt Abraham. The book of James tells us that God does not tempt any of us to sin It's not a part of God's character to do that, but he tests him specifically to test his faith. And James, in the book of James, also reiterates that testing of our faith is a part of our growth in our faith. It produces endurance and perseverance to follow God. So God calls Abraham and Abraham responds. And man, we've seen so far that God has been so faithful to Abraham, so patient with him, so gracious to him. I mean, God called Abraham out of his home, out of the land that he was familiar with, and he sent him to a place. He said, I will send you, I will lead you to this place that I show you. I promise to make you great. God promised to bless him so he can be a blessing. God said that he would bless Abraham with a child, with his wife, Sarah, and he has done it. When God calls Abraham, Abraham knows that he should listen to God. It's not a trivial thing for God to speak to him. It's not something he should take lightly. And so he listens to God. But what God now calls him to is startling. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait, what? Do what? God kill my, my only son, God? Yes, your son, Isaac. I mean, you can feel the tension even in how God communicates this to him. Take your son, Abraham, your only son, Isaac, just to be clear of whom am I talking about? The one who you love. This precious child of promise, this young man who is your pride and joy, this son who you absolutely adore, this boy who you and Sarah have longed for for over 25 years. Take him. Offer him as a burnt offering. Sacrifice him, Abraham. I mean, this is intense. This is an intense, challenging, it's a tense scene. No other explanation is given to Abraham. He says, go to where I will show you and do as I have said, Abraham. And this sounds a lot like God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he said, go to Abraham, to the land I will show you. Forsake Abraham, follow me, Abraham, put your faith in me, Abraham. In some ways, what everything that God has asked Abraham to do up to this point is absurd. And we said that at the beginning, we said these are absurd kind of things. And then part of the reason they're absurd is to show us that it's only God who can do these things. It's absurd that God would call a man out of his country and say that he's going to make him a great nation. A man whose wife is barren, a man who's old, a man who doesn't have the ability to make himself a great nation. It's absurd. But now God asks Abraham to do something that's beyond belief. What is God asking him to do? What is going on? Is this a contradiction of his faithfulness, of his promise? 
God, you promised you'd make me a great nation. You promised that through me you would bless the nations, that the redeemer of your people would come through my family, through my son. Is is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, is the promise of that going to be null and void? Will we never see redemption? Will we never see these things happen? I don't understand what's going on. What are you doing? So what does Abraham do? He does what he did in Genesis 12. He listens and he goes. Verses 3 through 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. The thrust of this text in the midst of telling the story is that Abraham believed God. He didn't hesitate to go. He did what God told him. He didn't go and tell anyone. He just put the things together that he needed and he went. He heard God's word and he sought to obey it. He seeks to walk in obedience to what God has told him to do, even when it's hard to understand, even when it's difficult to know what God might be doing. He goes to where God leads him, a far off place, a desolate and remote place. And it's a three day journey away. But it's in the midst of this journey that Abraham has to wrestle with who he knows God to be and what God has called him to do. You can imagine for three days walking and riding and bringing these people with you to go to this place that he is wrestling in his mind, wrestling in his heart with who he knows God to be and what God has called him to do. He knows that when he's obedient, even to a hard word from God, it goes better for him than when he's disobedient and tries to take things into his own hands. He's already done that multiple times. He knows that God has made a covenant promise to him. He's seen God provide what God said he would provide. He has seen God do what God said he would do. He has experienced and seen God's faithfulness over and over and over again. And it's on this, I believe, providential three-day journey that Abraham, once again, as he's wrestling with all of these things, places his faith in God completely. Hebrews chapter 11 helps us with this, helps us to understand what's going on in Abraham's head and heart. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham reasons God, the God who made everything out of nothing, the God who can redeem, the God who brings life out of death, the one who gave me this son in the first place when my wife was well past her childbearing years, this same God, I believe he can resurrect Isaac from the dead if he should so choose. Now, all of this may seem outrageous to us, may seem crazy to us that Abraham would do these things and, and seem to not even question anything that God is asking him to do. But it's in the midst of this, in the midst of what Abraham does, that we see the revelation of Abraham's faith. Verse 5, it says, then Abraham said to his young men, after he's seen the place that he's going to go, this mountain, he says, stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You stay here. 
we must go ahead alone to the mountain, to the place of sacrifice alone. But notice what he says to them. He says, we will go and we will worship and we will come again to you. Now, is Abraham lying at this point? He doesn't want to reveal to his son what's about to happen. He doesn't want to reveal to these servants what's about to happen. No, I don't think he's lying. What I think he's doing is operating in faith. God said Isaac is the son of promise. Even right now, I believe that to be true. God will do what only God can do. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Man, what a heart-wrenching question. Dad, we have have everything we need but the sacrifice. Dad, where's where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Even in Abraham's faith and the faithfulness of God, this would tear at his heart and his emotions. But Abraham shares his trust in God with Isaac. Again, we see a glimpse of his faith. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them together. Abraham believes God. He says, "God, God will provide what he needs. God will provide what he requires, son. Don't worry about it. It's a short answer, but it's packed with significance and meaning. To Isaac, it's simple. Don't worry, son. Trust God with me, son. What God requires, he provides. But much deeper than that is all of what God has promised. The future of Abraham's line, the future of God's people, the future of redemption for all the nations stands on this. But Abraham knows God to be faithful. God will provide. God will see this through. God will do it just as God has always done See, what we see here is that Abraham is flinging himself on the faithfulness of God. He has nothing else to depend on in this moment. He's seeking to be obedient, seeking to walk in obedience. And so he flings himself on the faithfulness of God, believing God would provide, believing God would redeem. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order in bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And the story slows down here. The author is seeking to tell us about the details of what's happening. I mean, can you imagine the emotions and the feelings and the adrenaline of what's going on? Let alone the fact that Isaac, who's clearly stronger than his hundred-year-old father, is willingly submitting to his father doing that looking at his father in the eyes, trusting his father as his father trusts God. Can you imagine the feelings of binding your your son up, laying him on top of an altar of wood, knowing what you're about to do? I mean, I can't even think of what that would feel like. I was trying to think of a a time in my own life when there's been a lot of emotion and a lot of adrenaline going. And Amy and my, my wife, Amy and I, we've been married now for almost 11 years And I can remember that when we were, the day that we got married, we're getting married in the church uh, that she grew up in, the church building that she grew up in, and hanging out downstairs with the groomsmen, waiting for the time for the the wedding ceremony to begin. And the way that we did things is the groomsmen were going to come in a different way than where I and uh, my best man, who's my dad, were going to come in with the pastor. And so all of a sudden they all left. 
And it was just me and, and, and my dad and the pastor. And I'm standing behind a door about to go in in front of hundreds of people and see my bride walk down the aisle for the first time. And man, I could feel my heart beating out of my chest. I hadn't been nervous at all. And I don't think it was even nervousness. I think it was just emotion and feeling and adrenaline coursing through my veins. And I thought, man, this is really about to happen. We're really about to do this. And I was getting to see my wife walk down the aisle, not get ready to sacrifice my son. Man, I can't even imagine the adrenaline and the emotion that would be going in this moment as Abraham seeks to do what God has told him to do. Then verse 10 says, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Man, the heart-wrenching obedience of Abraham is on display. He does what God calls him to do. But we have to remember verse 1. This is a test of Abraham's faith. As Abraham grips the knife tightly in his hand, moving towards his son who is looking at his father. Maybe tears welling up in both of their eyes. But then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. With a sense of urgency, the angel of the Lord calls him and tells him to stop what he's doing. And why does he do that? Because it's abundantly clear that Abraham trusts God, that he fears God, that he's placed his faith wholly and completely on God, that he was willing to give up his only son. Abraham's faith was not in what God gave to him. It was in God. So God stays Abraham's hand and he acknowledges his faith and obedience Man, we have to recognize that faith is a total commitment. Faith is a total commitment. It's not hedging your bets. It's not putting a little bit of faith. It is a complete commitment. But when it's faith in God, it's not ultimately giving, but receiving. What God requires, he provides. Verses 13 and 14 And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God provides a substitute for Isaac and a sacrifice is still made. And I love this picture here. I can imagine Abraham at this point quickly cutting or untying the rope around his son and getting him down and then quickly going to the ram and quickly killing the ram and quickly lighting the fire to consume the ram on the altar. Adrenaline still coursing through his veins, tears rolling down his face, worshiping the providing God with his promised son. This would be a moment that neither of them would ever forget. And Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He makes a declaration about this place, about the character and nature of God, his Lord, the one in whom he has put his trust, who he has believed, the one who he's flung himself on completely. I knew God would provide and he has. And God affirms to Abraham again that this is who he is. This is his character. He will do what he said. It will be his work alone. He is the provider. Verses 15 and 18 through 18. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from, from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God swears by himself. And Hebrews 6 tells us that the reason that he does this is because there's nothing higher that he can swear by. There's nothing more unchanging or significant to swear by but himself. It's to say, look, I I have said I would bless you. I have said that I will multiply you and bless the nations through you. But my character, my unchanging faithfulness is the testimony of my commitment. See, this is not blind faith for Abraham. He's not blindly going into this. This is not blind faith. It's faith in the God who is faithful. He knows who he's believing. He knows who he's trusting. And this is really the pinnacle of Abraham's faith journey with God. Soon after this, we see that the story of Abraham starts to wind down a little bit and shift to his son, Isaac. This is the pinnacle of Abraham's faith journey with God. and It's also a portrayal of God's ultimate love and faithfulness to his people. God affirms his covenant promise once again, but he amps it up with what he's already said to Abraham. Over these last 40 years of Abraham's life, he's been saying the same thing to him over and over and over again. But here he he adds to it. He says, by myself, I will do this. And it's because of your faithful obedience, I will do this. I will bless you. I will multiply you. All the nations will be blessed through your offspring because you have walked in obedience. Obedience is a clear overflow of Abraham's faith. That's true for you and me today. We don't obey in order to earn favor with God. Our obedience flows from the fact that we have favor with God. We've received that from him as he's poured it out on us through Christ and his righteousness alone. But notice that God adds something here. In verses 17 and 18, he says, And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations on the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He reaffirms his promise with Abraham mostly in the same way, but he adds something in here. He says, you will take possession of the gate of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we have to step back and think, well, is that true? Has that really come to fruition? I mean, the people of God would have various victories over their enemies, but oftentimes they failed. They were exiled away, brought to a foreign land, made slaves. That doesn't sound like victory over your enemies. The people of God would multiply greatly, but not to the point that anyone would say that in and of themselves that they have become a blessing to all nations. What this means is that someone greater must fulfill this promise to Abraham in order for God to continue to remain faithful to his promise. This is the pinnacle of Abraham's faith journey with God, but it also serves, as I said, to portray God's ultimate love and faithfulness to his people. It displays, what we see here in Genesis chapter 22, is a display of the lengths that God would go to save his people and to be faithful to his promise to redeem a greater son needed to come. One who would die and would be raised. A redeemer who would be victorious and would be a blessing to all peoples all over. And this son has come. Listen to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. John the Baptist in his ministry sees Jesus coming towards him. And he says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter comes back to this truth as well, saying, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. John reminds us also of what Jesus has done for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear God's wrath for our sins. Look, the only way that the seed of Eve can crush the head of the serpent, the only way that the enemies of God's image bears, our enemies can be defeated, sin and Satan and death. The only way for those things to be overcome is for a sufficient and full sacrifice to be made. Isaac couldn't do that. He wouldn't be a sufficient sacrifice to save God's people. You and I cannot do that. We cannot be our own sufficient sacrifice to heal ourselves, to cleanse ourselves by anything that we do. Jesus alone, the perfect son of Abraham, the perfect son of God, is worthy to lay his life down and take it up again in order to rescue and redeem God's people. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who has victory over his enemies. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who is a blessing to the nations. Jesus is the greater son. Jesus is the provided lamb. I mean, the crazy thing to think about in God's providence in planning out this story of redemption is even the place that all of this happens. God leads Abraham to a place. He says, I will establish for you. And it's this place of Mount Moriah. And that same place ends up being where the temple of God is built where sacrifices happen over and over and over again for the people of God to be able to be in relationship with God. But in that same vicinity, on a hill outside of the city, is the same place that a cross was erected and Jesus was nailed to it. 
Verse 14, it says the people continue to say on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it has been provided on that mount. Behold, the Lamb of God has come who takes away the sin of the world. And he didn't just die, he rose again. Abraham longed to see his son resurrected if God would require his son to be killed. God's son was killed and God's son was raised to new life, to bring life to all who would believe in him. Look, Abraham so loved God that he was willing to give his only son, but God so loved the world that he did give his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, will not perish under the weight and consequences of their sin, but will have eternal life. The cost of redemption is total, but God gives what he requires. See, this isn't about Abraham and his radical faith. This is about the Lord being the provider. I mean, can you imagine the love Abraham would have for his only son and the anguish of his heart? But think about God's love for his only son and the anguish of his heart. And he has an even greater love, even more significant love, maybe a willingness in his love. Not necessarily above his son, but a willingness in his love to love the world enough to crush his son so that you and I could have life. I think we can understand a little more clearly who God the Father is and who God the Son is and what they've done for us. The lavish love of God when we look at the story of Genesis 22. But the challenge for us today is similar to that of Abraham. Our response to God's extravagant love and faithfulness, this points to that. It points and challenges our own response. It's helpful for us to ask some evaluative questions of our own heart and our own life. I believe that's what God was doing in Abraham's life as well. For you this morning, what are you putting your faith in? On a regular daily basis in your life, what are you putting your faith in? Is it the blessings of God? Is your faith and your hope what God's given to you, just like Abraham could have put his hope in what God gave to him, or is it in God? Is it in yourself or the one alone who can save and redeem? I think oftentimes we can give lip service to our faith in God, but the reality of our daily lives portrays that we have a faith in a functional Savior, a false Savior. You may say, well, how can I figure out if that's the case? How can I know if I have faith in a, in a functional Savior, in a false Savior? How can you know where you might be doing that in your life right now? When you wake up tomorrow, when you navigate through the mundane parts of life, or you traverse through the, the tragedy or difficulty of life, ask yourself this question, where is your hope? Where is your hope ultimately? In the midst of the boring parts of life. In the midst of the difficult parts of life, where is your hope? Do you find comfort and security in the fact that you have a house to live in? Is it the person that you're laying next to in bed? Is it your kids or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Is it the fact that you have friends that you need people around you? You say, I can get through tomorrow because I'm going to see some other people. I can get through tomorrow and navigate through life just because of these other people around me. Is it because you know there's money in the bank account? You like the feeling of being loved. You like the feeling of being known and cared for and say, that's how I get through this stuff. That's, that's where my hope ultimately lies. And let me say, none of these things are bad things. They're just not ultimate things. 
Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in this, he says, God, talking about Abraham, he says, God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you, not, that, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. It's so easy for us to slip into that, to find our hope, to place our hope in something else. And Abraham adored his son. He loved his son. And the temptation is there to put his hope in this son. But God says, no, your hope needs to be in me. Who or what is your rock in your life right now? What sustains you in life? Man, if you place the expectation on someone else to be your rock, if you place the expectation on something else to sustain you in the midst of difficulties in life, you will crush that person. You will crush them. They're not built to do that. That's not who God has made people to be in your life. They're not there to hold you up. God alone is provider. It'll be like an elephant sitting on a little tiny car, just smushing it to the ground. And don't place those kind of expectations on someone who cannot bear them. Christ alone is your rock. Everything else is sinking sand as we sung earlier this morning. That's where your hope must lie. See, the covenant relationship with God must be more important than the covenant blessings of God. Let me say that again. The covenant relationship with God, the fact that you and I can know God, that we can be in a relationship with God. That is more important. That is more precious. That is more hope-filled. That is more amazing to us than the blessings that God gives us because we're in a relationship with him. Abraham must desire God himself and not simply desire God's gifts and promises. He must seek God as his greatest treasure and not just what God gives. And the same is true for you and for me. Man, how often do we put our hope in other things And when we do this, I think we trample on God's love for us. His extravagant love that he's poured out on us, that he would give his only son to you, for you, that you might be brought into relationship with him. Is your faith in God just hedging bets, guarding against the odds? Abraham is tested in this way, but Abraham knows God the God who's faithful, and he trusts him completely even when it doesn't make sense to him. He believes God will provide what is required. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God provides for you? How many times do we say we believe, but we want a guarantee of the outcome from God? Abraham has no guarantee at all when he goes and seeks to walk in obedience. He doesn't know what God's going to do, but he believes God is faithful. So what Abraham does is he goes back to God. He goes back to his word. He says, yes, I believe you. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it, but I don't doubt your faithfulness. Because even in my wavering faith, you have always been faithful to me, to God. Surgeon, we have to know this morning that there is no contradiction with God. And he remains still the Lord who provides. So God will provide for you and for me. I'm not talking about material things. I'm not talking about riches or comfort or relationships or security. No, God provides life-giving and life-sustaining grace through Christ. 
Every second of every day of your life is held in his hands. He gives you the air that you breathe. He provides everything for you. But that's not primarily what we're talking about here because we could very quickly question God's faithfulness when we don't get what we think we need or deserve. But God still remains provider. And what God asks Abraham to do, he does for us. Listen to Romans eight thirty two. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son. Paul goes back to that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says when you're questioning whether God is still provider, whether you're, when you're questioning whether God still cares for you, go back to the fact that God gave his son for you. Will he not also continue to be the provider for you, giving you all things? And what are all things? Paul goes on to say, In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice Paul doesn't say God will provide for you by taking all these things away, by removing you from the difficulties of life. No, he says he will remain with you in the midst of it. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God continues to provide grace upon grace out of his unending and unrelenting love for his people. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And he calls you now to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll take care of you. See, when you and I doubt the goodness and loving kindness and faithful provision of the Lord, we have to go back to the cross. For God so loved the world, for God so loved you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need is provided for in Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection See, at the cross of Christ, the love and the justice of God meet. The love of God is poured out. It's put on display for us, but the justice of God is there too because sin is dealt with. And God continues to provide his grace to keep you. As Alan said this morning, as we were walking through scripture and and taking a time of confession, is that God saves us by grace alone and God keeps us by grace alone. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we we give glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Man, that is worship. That's praise. God provides what he requires and he continues to keep us and sustain us and he'll bring us all the way home. We can count on that. On the mount of the Lord, God will be the provider. The Lord provided for Isaac and Israel so that they might live. And the Lord has provided for you so that you might have life now and forever. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus was raised to new life for you. He is your substitute. He is your portion. He is your provision in life. What God requires, he's provided. So let's let God be God and not seek after a savior in self or someone or something else. 
Let's not place our hope in anything else. Placing our expectation on someone or something else to sustain us through every aspect of our life. Let's wholly and completely fling ourselves in the faithfulness of God. Who did not withhold his son, but gave him willingly. Are you trusting in something or someone else today? A counterfeit God in your life right now? And turn from that in repentance. Turn away from that in repentance. Confess that to the Lord and turn in faith and ongoing trust in Christ alone. Sojourn, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else that you could place your hope or your trust in. So my challenge to you this week is that you would go home and you would contemplate that. You would think about that. Man, am I putting my hope in anything else above God, above Christ? And if something comes to your mind by the leading of the Spirit, that you would quickly confess that and turn away from it and turn to Christ alone. Jesus is the beginning and end of our hope because in and through Jesus, God is the consummate provider. See, Abraham longed to see new life. He longed to see resurrection take place. And figuratively, that happened with his son Isaac. But we now have a greater resurrection to look to for our hope. Jesus has victory. Death and sin do not win. The promised son has been killed, but he has risen again. So now we can walk in faithful obedience because Jesus has victory. It changes our perspective on life. With anything that we're going through, whether we're struggling in life or we're succeeding in life, we can look back to the fact that Christ died for us and was raised again. Then we can follow a better Lord, a better master now. So let the faithfulness of God that's displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus be the anchor of your soul when life is normal, when life is great, when life is hard, when life seems unbearable. Come back to that. It is your only hope. Look to him who was and is and is to come. Look to him who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Look to him who is the living one who died but is now alive forevermore. And let's remind each other of this. Let's encourage each other with this. Whether things are going really great or we're struggling in life, that we constantly point each other back to our hope alone, being in God alone. And then go tell others about this. Let's go tell others about our faithful God, our providing God, the God who gives what he requires. Let's tell people that Jesus is better. And praise God, a greater son has come, a substitute for sin that gives us sustaining hope and peace now and forever. The psalmist in Psalm 118 writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. As we come forward to the table this morning, let's give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his love has been poured out on us. He is our strength. He is our song. He has become our salvation. As you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, be reminded and refreshed in the depths of your heart that God has provided for you. 
Christ's body was given for you. Christ's blood was shed for you so that you might be reconciled to God and reconciled to God's people. The anguish of sacrifice is overcome in the triumph of resurrection. And Jesus is alive. So come to Jesus today. Rest in Jesus today. Know that Jesus is better today. He was crushed for your iniquities. He was raised for your life. Let's celebrate the God who provides this morning. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion this morning. And the reason is we don't want you just to come forward to take some bread and some in the cup because it doesn't really mean anything for you. We want you to take Christ. We want you to place your faith in God and Christ alone and not some other counterfeit God, whether it be yourself or something else. So if you don't yet know Christ, if you haven't fallen on his grace, then just hang out in your seat. Don't come forward and pray. Ask God to show himself to you. Repent of your sin today and turn to Christ today. And please come talk to me or anyone else in our church. We'd love to help you know what it means to know and follow Jesus. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we are blown away. We should be blown away, Lord, by your grace. The fact that you would not spare your own son, but would willingly give him to us. That we might know him, that we might know you, that we might be made in a right, put in a right relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you of the picture of Genesis 22 of the obedience of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, that his hope was in you alone, not in the things that you give to him. And Lord, as we see that picture played out and think of the anguish of your heart as you didn't stop your son from being killed, but you allowed him to bear the full weight of your wrath so that you might call us your sons and daughters. Lord, help us to rest in that truth today, to know that you are the providing Lord, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, that you will not withhold any good gift from us, that all good things come from you, Father. And Lord, in that, I pray that our hope would be in you and not the things that you give to us. I pray that our hope would be in the cross of Christ and nothing else. And that as we meditate on that, as we rest on that, as we confess the counterfeit gods of our life to you, that you would transform our hearts and as we're transformed, that we would go out and tell others about you. That you're a God of grace, that you're the God that provides what you require and that you would call people to yourself through us as we open our mouths. Lord, we thank you for the richness of your grace, your unfathomable grace that, Lord, I don't even think we can fully understand. We won't fully understand until we're on the other side of heaven and all eternity with you. But I pray now you'd help it to sink into our hearts and our minds as best as it can be understood now. And it will blow us away. Lord, your love is great. We praise you for that this morning. In Christ's name, amen.